Hello, I'm David Oakes and welcome to this special series of Trees A Crowd, a series where I explore, along with this wood pigeon, the secrets and stories behind my country's native trees. If you're listening to this episode, you are no doubt already up to speed, in which case, feel free to sing along. But if you're not, here is award-winning folk singer Bella Hardy to get you in the spirit for today's proceedings. Up the secrets and stories beneath the 56-ish native trees of the British Isles. Right, so this week I'm on location and for the record I'm also in the past. It is still April here. I will probably still be chasing Vikings around Ireland in August so I've taken this moment to pre-record today's stories. But right now I am sitting in Salisbury Cathedral Close looking up to the cathedral spire and hoping that the bells will shortly oblige me by chiming and prove that I'm not lying out of my arse. Note to self, get my editor Ollie to download cathedral bell sound effects just in case. Right, I'm not here to get my COVID vaccination, although many people have had their jabs here in the nave as part of the English vaccine rollout, hashtag vaccines at Vespers. No, I'm here, predictably, to talk all about trees. Now, I know this cathedral close like the back of my hand. I went to school here, about 50 metres from where I'm actually sitting. It was a school that boasted William Golding as one of its former members of staff. Golding became famous for writing Lord of the Flies and based... There you go. There you go. That's Salisbury Cathedral. I'm not lying. Thank you, Ollie, for the sound effect. Um, Yeah, Golding became famous for his Lord of the Flies and based the misdeeds of his stranded boys upon the behaviour of the pupils he witnessed at my school secretly a little bit proud about that. Another local writer was Anthony Schaffer, who wrote the book The Wicker Man, a book me and my friends adapted into a site-specific stage comedy musical, a musical full of pagan rituals, pagan rituals that we've decided to rehearse here in Salisbury Cathedral Close before a verger kindly suggested that it may not be entirely appropriate to rehearse human sacrifices so close to a cathedral, and he asked us politely to leave. But for me, rather than Golding, or indeed Schaffer, When I think of Salisbury Cathedral Close, I think of the legendary English painter and pastoralist John Constable, and I think of the first of today's two trees. Tree 32. The English Elm. The English Elm, Ulmus Procera. Now, Constable spent many months in Salisbury painting from multiple angles the city's famous cathedral spire. From within the close, from across the water meadows, or framed by rainbows, Constable, like those in the Kremlin, was hypnotised by its 123-metre spire. In around 1820, Constable painted Salisbury Cathedral from the Southwest. Artists are rarely known for their catchy titles. This painting shows the might not only of the cathedral spire, but also of the English elm trees that surrounded the perimeter of the cathedral close. Reaching 36 metres in height, the English elm was one of few native trees that can hold its own against the spire. Its taxonomic name, Ulmus Procera, comes from the Latin for tall. Our English elm is the tall elm. If you're curious, and if the galleries ever reopen, this painting can now be found in the collection at the V&A alongside two other elm masterpieces – One is another by Constable, painted in 1821, a highly romanticised portrait of the elm, again imaginatively titled Study for the Trunk of an Elm Tree. And the other is a response piece to this, created in 2003 by Lucian Freud, an etching entitled After Constable's Elm. 
both the etching and his dully informative title paying homage to his precursor. All three works are well worth taking a trip to South Kensington to see anyway. The point I am at length to make is this. I was a member of the school choir for seven years and walked through the cloisters of this cathedral to sing here at least once a month. At school, as part of our physical education, we ran around the cloister at least twice a week. And as a young man studying art A-level, I would sit in the cloister for hours at a time, for days on the trot, emulating my hero and trying to draw the spire that inspired Constable. But, and here's the rub, I never once saw Constable's elms, for, alas and alack, their absence wasn't because Constable took his artistic license too seriously and filled the close with trees that weren't already there. These trees no longer existed. Ophiostoma novo ulmi is probably the most famous fungus of which you've never heard the name. Discovered by Dutch pathologists in the 1920s, this fungus causes the infamous Dutch elm disease, Affecting only trees of the elm family, this disease stops the tree's xylem from transporting water and nutrients and leads to the tree's eventual death. The fungus is spread by the scolitis beetle, also known as the elm bark beetle. Now this beetle leaves deadly yet beautiful patterns in its wake, looking something like a cross between a Maori facial tattoo and a Rorschach ink blot. These swirls are actually the brood chambers of this deadly fungus-carrying beetle. Now, when the hordes of young beetles emerge from these chambers, they zoom off to find elm leaves to devour. And from here, the fungus finds a way into the leaf's tiny veins and then into the more vital parts of the tree's vascular system. A weak strain of Dutch elm first arrived in the 20s, but it wasn't until a more resilient form arrived in the 60s that the British Isles began to suffer. Millions of elms were wiped out. And being the favourite of the Scolitis beetle, the disease especially affected Constable's muse, the English elm. Today, nationwide, nearly all of the giant English elms are gone. Also lost are the species that depended upon the elm, such as the large tortoiseshell butterfly, which is now extinct in Britain, due in no small part to the loss of its primary food plant. Young elms, reproducing via suckers, enable the species to survive, of sorts, in a stunted form. But these elms barely reach five metres in height and are really only treading water whilst they await the inevitable arrival of the Scolitis beetle and its fiendish fungal friend. That said, with mankind's careful intervention, a few successful sites have managed to keep the beetle at bay. Indeed, in East Sussex, a Dutch elm control zone that stretches from Falmer in the west to Pevensey in the east has proved massively successful. There are now more elms in East Sussex, including some large veteran trees, than when the disease first arrived. So, English nationalists, be not afeard, for your proud English elm stands tall, besting the dastardly Dutch in a way that only the English can. After all, this is a tree so mighty, so English, that when London hosted the first World Fair in Hyde Park in 1851, they built the Crystal Palace up, over and around the pre-existing English elm trees, the tree itself becoming an emblem for England for English supremacy and all the wonderfully chewy associations that that involved. Or did it? The truth is that few botanists today believe the English elm to be a native species at all. In fact, few believe it even to be a species. <laughs> the secret behind the true identity of the English elm, or at least the story that I choose to believe, starts with one single tree. A tree brought to England by a Roman called Lucius Junius Moderatus columella. 
Born around 7 AD, Columella was one of the very first writers on agriculture, producing two books. The first is called Dura Rustica, which is basically a Roman farming manual, and the other is perhaps more relevant to this podcast, De Arboribus, On Trees. And one of the trees that he knew very well in Italy was the field elm, Ulmus Minor. Now, it's thought that Columella brought a cultivar of the field elm to Britain for the purpose of providing a framework to grow grapevines upon. The Romans, very sensibly, wouldn't dare travel abroad without securing a source for their precious wine. Now, this particular field elm cultivar was extremely fast-growing and efficient at sending out suckers to reproduce vegetatively, and so perfect for his boozy purpose. In fact, it was so efficient at rapidly reproducing that it eventually became the major elm of England and Wales, and this was, you've guessed it, the grandfather to the English elm. But if you've been listening closely to this podcast over the past few months, you will know that it is very often the way with species that reproduce asexually that a cloned tree from a limited gene pool is often highly susceptible to a variety of diseases, and in this case, especially the one that would hit it with fury in the 1960s. The origins of the English elm, like with all sad stories, hides the seemingly inevitable, tragic, eventual conclusion. But, technically, tree 32... The English elm... The English elm is in actual fact a cultivar of tree 33. the field elm, and should be called Ulmus minor atinia. So, what is so special about this field elm, or the small-leaved elm, as it's also known? Well, for one, like the English elm, it is also, probably, not a native tree. It's an archaeophyte, probably brought over to Britain by men of the Bronze Age. Or, if it is native, it is probably only native to the south of England. And if you are of the opinion that there are too many probablys in that sentence, then so proves the limit to what ancient pollen records can actually teach us. But, origins aside, elmwood has a tight and twisted grain. It is resilient to water and is amazingly durable. As such, it was used in many major cities as water ducts before the increased availability of metal. From as early as the 13th century, bored elm pipes ran underground, and between the 16th and 18th centuries, all water pipes in London were bored elm pipes. And if you thought they were bored, I had to double-check this fact on www.sewerhistory.org. Boom! Seriously, though, that website is actually quite fascinating. Other uses for elm wood are slightly more macabre. Traditionally, we made elm coffins, And in somewhat of a chicken-egg scenario, elms are also particularly prone to sudden branch drop syndrome. This is where a healthy tree, usually in the summer months, surprisingly sheds a limb. This has, in the past, unexpectedly crushed those seeking shade beneath its boughs, and as such, providing an inhabitant for the aforementioned elm coffins. And thus chimes the bells of Salisbury Cathedral. But the elms' association with death runs deeper still. Upon hearing of the death of Eurydice, and before he attempted his ill-fated journey to the underworld to rescue her, the Orpheus of Greek myth mourned her loss by singing and playing upon his lyre from the sound of his melancholy tune. A grove of elm trees grew. 
It was to this same grove of elms that he retreated after he had failed to lead his love back from below. Having turned to check, she was indeed there, and breaking the sole condition the gods had insisted he should follow, should he wish to hold her once more in his loving arms. The Greeks dedicated the elm to the god of dreams, Morpheus, for it seems the only place Orpheus would find happiness was to be in his sleep. And on that happy note, thus concludes an episode of Tree Death, of Coffins, of Deadly Diseases, and a world where dreams are the only place where one can find comfort. Joy, oh joy. But that is only half the story of our native elms. Tune in next week for part two and tree 34, the witch elm. Bye-bye, and thank you for listening. Uploading the secrets and stories beneath the 56-ish native trees of the British.